How many of you like to play chess? Anybody? Yeah, we got some chess players. How many of you, come on, you don't have to be humble about it. How many of you would say you're pretty decent at chess? A couple of you, okay. Yeah, my dad, when he was a kid, he, he was really good at chess. He still is really good. In fact, at one point, I can't remember exactly how old he is. I think he was 14. He played um, a chess champion. I believe it was the state champion for chess, and he beat him at age 14. And uh, I think that's pretty cool. And so uh, he actually had to stop playing chess when he was about 20-something because he would focus so hard as he would think ahead about moves that he would get migraines. And it would just, you know, kind of like a CPU working overtime, I guess. I don't know. But it would just give him migraines uh, thinking so hard about chess strategy. In fact, he's been teaching my son how to play chess, uh, which is kind of fun. And Samuel, uh, my son, is really kind of getting into it. And he's started going to this chess club, and he, he's really enjoying learning how to, how to play chess. And so he asked, begged me to play with him the other day. And so I said, okay. And so we set up the chessboard and started playing. And I'm thinking, you know, I should be, like, I should encourage him, right, in learning how to play chess and, you know, encouraging him. Let, let him, you know, maybe let him win, but then my competitive side kicked in and overwhelmed my good dad's side. And I just started going for blood, right? So I got, I got his queen. And then, you know, if you play chess after that, it's kind of all over uh, pretty much. And so, you know, three or four moves later, it was checkmate. And then I felt like a lousy human, but I beat him. Which, if he keeps playing and learning like he is, probably will only be like another year. You know, he's only nine now, but I'll probably only be able to beat him another year or so. Um, so anyway, the point of chess is to get somebody into checkmate, right? The point of chess as you maneuver is to trap somebody, to trap the king so that there's no move, there's no way out. And if you trap them, if you checkmate them, you win the game. And so today's scripture in Luke chapter 20, we're going to see the religious leaders of Jesus' day playing chess essentially with Jesus. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to checkmate him. And to do that, they're going to ask him two questions that relate to some questions that I think maybe you in the room have struggled with or maybe you're struggling with right now. And one of those kind of goes like this. uh, Does all this Jesus stuff really make any difference in my day-to-day life. I mean, you know, I come to church and I believe, but does this really make any difference in my day-to-day life? Or maybe is, is, is God really there and is he active in my life? You know, if we sat down, you'd go, I believe in God, but when it boils right down to it, you're not really sure if he's active in your life. You're not really sure how that all works, right? In fact, some of you, you don't think he is. You, you live more like at some point he just sort of wound up the universe and, and he really doesn't care. He really plays no active role in my life today. Or how about this? Is it really worth living this, the Jesus way? You know, Because the Jesus way is a life of self-sacrificing your own desires and wishes for the good of others and for, for the sake of his kingdom. Is it really worth it? When he says, seek first the kingdom of God, is it really worth it? Does it even matter in the end? Maybe some of you are struggling with those questions. 
or something related to those today. And we're going to look in, and see in the scripture as they try to trap Jesus how this relates to us a couple thousand years later. And just as we, uh, as you head on over to Luke chapter 20, if you have your Bibles or your apps or you can follow on the screen, just to, to catch you up to where we are, we left off of this, this series. We took a break last week and showed you um, a fantastic video uh, by uh, an amazing teacher. And if you missed it, yeah, you missed it. Sorry. Some things you just got to show up to church for, okay? Um, but just to catch you up, where Winston left us off two weeks ago, we were in the final days leading up to the cross, the last couple days of Jesus' earthly ministry before the cross. And just before this, Jesus had entered Jerusalem on a donkey in this period of a couple days, fulfilling the Zechariah prophecy of the humble king. As he comes into town, he weeps over Jerusalem because they're missing the day and the time that God is coming to them. He drives out the sellers in the temple just the day before, flips over the money changers tables and said, you've turned this from a house of prayer into a robber's den. And then they grill him and ask, who do you think you are? By whose authority are you doing this? And then what Winston brought us up, where Winston brought us last time was the parable of the tenants and these wicked tenants that keep abusing the managers of, of, of the vineyard, the, the tenants, they, they're abusing their role in managing. And the king keeps sending messengers to them. And finally, he sends his own son. And it says, and they kill him. And then Jesus says, what is, that, what is that the king gonna do to them? The moral of the story is he's going to take the vineyard away from them and give it to faithful managers. And they knew he spoke that parable against him, and so they want to kill him. In fact, that's where we pick up the text in Luke 20, verse 19. It says this, The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately, right after he tells this parable, because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Verse 20. And keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. This is their end game. This is where they want to get to. This is the trap. They want to set a trap so they can end up getting Jesus killed, handed over to the authority, arrested, whatever, thrown in jail. They don't really care. They just want him off their streets. And they don't want the crowd to know that they're responsible for it. And so they're going to plot, they're going to scheme, they're going to look two or three moves down the road and see if they can come up with a way. And so you just kind of see these guys huddled up after this parable as they go, we got to get rid of this guy, and they're so angry. And they've got this little, I picture it, as a uh, dark, smoke-filled room, you know, they got the poker tables, the cigars out, and she's like, how do we get rid of this guy? come on, we need some ideas. And they're scratching their head and they're kicking around some ideas. How do we get rid of them? How do we get rid of Jesus? And then they come up with an idea and they're like, that's it. This is the trap. This is the checkmate move. There is no way out of it. And today we're gonna look at two different checkmate moves that they try to make over, this, over the course of this day. And here's the first one. Verse 21. They sent these spies, and the spies questioned him. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right 
and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's a good question. I don't quite see how that's a checkmate question. But let me just tease this out a little bit. This is their move. This is their play. This is the first one they come up with. And see, it's actually really brilliant. It's really conniving. Because here's a picture of a Roman denarius that they would use to pay taxes. It has Caesar Tiberius. This would actually be Tiberius Caesar, the the Caesar who is in charge, uh, the emperor of the Roman Empire in the time of Jesus. And in the inscription, it would say this, um, this inscription, Tiberius Caesar, Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, which literally means Tiberius Caesar, his name, exalted son of the divine exalted. That's totally blasphemous, especially to someone in a Jewish culture. One of the, the, the commands that they followed and took very seriously is don't have any images and, and you shall have no other gods before me. No other gods, no idolatry. And every time they had to use this coin, they were participating in this whole system of idolatry. And, and, and so they ask him, what do, what do we do here? Is it, is it lawful? Should we pay taxes to Caesar, this coinage which you have to use to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And see, in this first attempt to checkmate move, it's really brilliant because here's what they're doing. Number one, their hope is he'll say, no. And then they're going straight to Pilate, just like they did a couple days later. And if he says no, you know, they accuse him falsely in, in two, two days from now, right? In a couple days from now, they're going to accuse him falsely. But they would have been able to accuse him as being a revolutionary, and Rome does not tolerate people that take their revenue, right? They don't tolerate it. Some of you, one of your biggest fears is getting audited, isn't it? You're like, ah. well, think about a go- you know, think about a government where they pull you out and crucify you by the side of the road, leave you hanging for dead, thousands of people, yeah. And so they think if we can just get them on this. We know he's, he thinks he's the Messiah, and so he, he, he always you know, upholds God's law. So if we could just get him on this, Rome will take care of him. They'll do our dirty work, and we won't have to. We won't have to. Or, but here's the checkmate move. Because you know, you can get somebody in check, and then they have a way out of it in chess. But here's the checkmate move. Because or, or he'll say, yes, you have to pay taxes to Caesar. And if he does that, he's going to completely lose the crowd because his whole kingdom of God thing, you know, this whole kingdom of God movement thing, which is Jesus' primary message all throughout the Gospels, you know, this breaking in, repent, turn to God, the people will see that this is just some sort of personal spiritual thing, but there's really no application of the kingdom of God in my day-to-day life. You know, the taxation rate in Rome is ridiculous. It was, it was very hard on the common person. And so they'll see, all right, the king, this whole thing that Jesus is talking about, this guy must not be the Messiah because we know the Messiah is supposed to you know, come in and wipe out injustice. And he said, just said, pay your taxes with this blasphemous coin. The crowd will turn against him. And then we'll get our way anyway because without the crowd, he's powerless. Then we can arrest him. Then we can do whatever we want to him. 
But, verse 23, Jesus, he saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius. Show me a denarius. He's like, oh, so, so, so yeah, the, yeah, the taxes. Uh, l- let's see. I love this because Jesus turns, from the, turns on the accusers and all of a sudden puts them on the defensive. Show me a denarius. And all of a sudden, sheepishly, you got to pull the denarius out of your pocket. Oh, you mean you have one of those coins bearing the blasphemous image of Caesar on it? Oh, okay. I bet you use that, don't you? In fact, I bet you went down to the market a little bit earlier and had some hummus and pita, didn't you? <laughs> and you bought it with that. We were, our staff was at a, a conference in Denver, a Vineyard National Conference, and fantastic time this, this week. Um, and we got to go to the Jerusalem Cafe and eat some really good hummus because my wife loves it. She used to go to Israel all the time, and it's about the closest we can find here. It, anyway, that's completely off topic, random. Just thought you'd want to know. Call me, and I can hook you up with some good hummus. Um, and I'm really mispronouncing that, but that's okay. Moving on. And so he said, show me a denarius, right? Show it to me. And, and they pull this out sheepishly. And then he, he asks them this question. Who's, whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. And he said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. Brilliant. Brilliant, isn't it? It was brilliant. Verse 26 says, they were unable to trap him in what he said there in public. And astonished by, by his answer, they became silent. They thought they had him. And a lot of, uh, a lot of commentaries and different things would, would kind of go off and talk about church and state and all these things. And we're not, we're not going to do that today. There's lessons you can learn. You can't really build a, a construct from just this one statement of Jesus for you have to go look at the rest of the New Testament. And basically, just real quick, you know, basically our, our, our responsibility if you're a Jesus follower towards your government is to respect, to understand God has a sovereign role in this. And one of the biggest commands is to pray for your, your governing leaders, to pray. And so let me just throw this out. This is free. But if you spend more time griping on Facebook than you do praying for your, for your leaders, um, could I suggest maybe you might want to turn that little equation around, that would probably be the better Jesus follower thing to do. Okay, we'll move on from that. That's another conversation. We'll unpack that some other time. But this is their checkmate move number one, is Jesus, he's either a revolutionary or if he, if he says don't pay taxes, it's just this private spiritual belief. The kingdom of God is just this thing, you know, and someday you'll die and go to heaven, but it really doesn't have any impact on the day-to-day life we live, on injustice and all these, you know, on, on people's hurt and pain. And Jesus goes, no, no, no. He flips it on his head. He doesn't fall for the trap, the checkmate move they're trying to get him. And he says, no, you live under a government. God allowed that government to be set up. Get back what belongs to that government. But Here's the statement, because this is exactly what Jesus keeps hammering these guys on, is that their heart isn't God's, that their heart is far from God's. And he says, give back to God's what is God's. When he says, whose image, let's go back to the last verse for just a second. 
When he says whose image is on that, the, the first thing we get about image in Scripture is where? Genesis 1, where it says he made us in what? His image. His image. And so there's this playback and this tie all the way back to Genesis 1 where he says, give back to Caesar what's Caesar's, but give to God what's God. Who's God? You are. You are marked. You are in his image. Your very life belongs to him. And Jesus looks at these guys whose their hearts refuse to follow God. They, they have a show of religion, but they refuse to follow God. And he says, your hearts are far away. Your far, hearts are far away. See, Jesus is after something much bigger than dealing with Rome and becoming a physical king. He is calling out a people, a people from Israel and after his death and resurrection from all the nations who will bear his image to every nook and cranny of this world. He's calling out a people who will live their lives led by and obedient to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And this whole idea of just strictly a, a spiritual kingdom, you know, this private spiritual belief doesn't line up at all with what Jesus said, e even in the Lord's Prayer, right? What does he teach us to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done, what? On earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're to pray. And then through our actions as we follow his leading, we're actually called to walk that out on a day-to-day -day basis. And so, how does this all tie in today? Well, two one of, I think one of the first checkmate moves, traps, let's just call it a trap that we can fall into. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus or if you're considering being a follower of Jesus, is this, I, I call it a distraction or a social cause fixation. That when God is leaning on you to submit your life to him in an area, to follow him, you look for something good to do instead you can distract yourself with. You get involved in a pet cause, even good causes. You get involved in an issue of justice, which is good. We should be doing that, right? And that sort of becomes your main thing. And, and that allows you to feel good about yourself while simultaneously not doing the thing that God is leading you and calling you to do. The flip side of that is that you treat your, your, your faith just like a private spiritual matter. You believe in God, you believe in Jesus, and someday you hope when you die you'll go to heaven. But really, if anybody from the outside looked at your life, it makes absolutely no difference in your life today. Oh, I mean, you're a good person, you know. You try your best to be a good person. You show up at church. But when it comes down to it, you live like God is not alive, he's not active, he's not present in your life. You live your life like you're not, like the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in you, which if you're a follower of Jesus, we're told he does. And I think that's one of the big, you see, I think that's one of the big traps that Christians fall into. See, even in our society, one of the big mantras Everybody's fine with faith as long as it's just your own private spiritual matter, right? You can believe whatever you want to believe. Everybody's good with that. But as soon as it starts impacting, as soon as it starts telling you or you feel like it's telling somebody 
what to do with their morality or their generosity or, or what to do with your selfishness or what to do with your anger or what to do with your unforgiveness. And as soon as God starts pressing on those things, that's where people get very uncomfortable. Don't tell me what to do. And some of you, that's what you're dealing with. It's just the stiff-arming God. Some of you, you have no expectation that God is gonna move and do anything in the present. No listening to the prompting of his Holy Spirit. You live your life functionally like a deist or a materialist. A deist is God wound it all, all, all up at one point and just sort of let it go. A materialist, you know, there's no God. Everything we know is just material in the universe. We can explain it through science. I listened to a fascinating little talk on quantum mechanics. Uh, Friday, I was like, it's hard to even understand what quantum mechanics is. It's like, you're like, whoa. But some of you, that's, that's the way you, you live your life, isn't it? Functionally, you're a materialist. And you wouldn't say you believe that, but why are you living your life that way? All right. So they were unable to trap him in checkmate attempt number one. And here's number two. Verse 27. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. Now, two things. That's weird. But let me just uh, set it up. There's two religious, political power parties of the day that ruled in Israel. One of them are the Pharisees. We talk about them a lot in church. They're always going back and forth and fighting with Jesus. They're ultra strict, ultra religious. They keep all the rules. They make all the rules. The other group is the Sadducees. And um, they only believe the first five books of the Bible or the Torah, the books that Moses wrote. They don't believe the rest of it has any bearing on their life. The Pharisees, they believe all of what we would call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, plus all of the oral tradition that goes along with that. The the Sadducees, and here's a cheesy joke um, that'll help you remember this. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. But they didn't, because the first five books of the Bible don't really talk too much or much at all about the afterlife, right? And so they just kind of thought that now is all there is. Now is all there is. And so they're setting Jesus up for a trap, and to do it, they pull up this obscure law of Moses, but they would have known it really well, because it was called levirate marriage, which is basically, you know, you, your brother's Brother dies, leaves a widow, no kids, uh, because in that age, several thousand years ago, um, women couldn't own property. It would have to go through the line of the man. They would marry the brother so that the, the family name, so that the property could uh, stay in the family line, because the point was he'd have, you know, she'd have a, uh, a child over here, finally, hopefully a boy, and then the, the uh, property line could pass down, then the guy's name would be remembered and passed on. So that's essentially this law. And some of you are like, I'm glad I don't live then, as you're thinking about, you know, your brother-in-law, right? All right. But that's how it worked. Now, so they're setting him up for a trap. They're going to trap him. And here's how the trap rolls out. 
Now there are seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second. And then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now, then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since seven were married to her. Gotcha. You're like, what? What? This is, I just, before we get into it, I think the better question that they should have asked is, why didn't brother number like three or four go, time out? Uh Uh-uh. Ain't happening. Or at least get a food tester, right? You know, like, all right, you're eating that first, babe. Because something fishy's going on here, you know? I'm just saying. So, second attempt, this is, this is why I think this is significant. It's because Jesus' whole message has been, hey, give up what you can't hold on to now for the sake of the kingdom, which you can lay hold of for eternity. Give up treasure that you can't keep now because we're all going to die and you can't keep it after you die. If you've been with us in this series for a while, this is something Jesus has talked about a lot, right? That, the, that it's worth everything to go after the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God, he calls it the pearl of great price. It's worth so much that when a man digs and finds a treasure in a field, he, he goes and he sells everything and buys the field just so he can get the kingdom. And that's the attitude we're, we're supposed to have about it. And what these guys are doing are attempting to demonstrate that this whole idea of the kingdom and the afterlife is just foolish. It's just silly. It just doesn't make sense. So they come up with this really weird, stupid story, right? But the whole point is, the whole point is, come on, this whole thing doesn't even make sense, you know, in their minds. It's just foolish. It's ridiculous. You, You followers of Jesus, you might as well just go home, quit following him. Get down to making some real money. See, the Sadducees were, were, were the elite ruler class. Many of them were very wealthy. They didn't believe in the resurrection or any afterlife, so they were thinking, you got to get it all right here and right now. Does that sound familiar in the culture that we live in? You only go around once. You heard that? YOLO, you only live once. Get everything you can. How about this one? The one who dies with the most toys wins. Drive fast, leave a good-looking body. <laughs> Heard that one, too. My, my friend always said that. He drove a Datsun. <clears throat> 280Z. It was pretty fast. But he sold it and bought a minivan, so he's still alive today. Kids will do that to you. But they're just attempting to, to, to demonstrate this whole thing is just ridiculous. Do you, do you really believe that? You really believe that? And now, you know, with everything we know about science, I mean, they didn't even know science then, but everything we know, do you really believe there's something that comes next? Do you really believe it? It's a common question, common thing people struggle with. And so Jesus replies to their question and says, basically, well, first off, you're wrong. But check this out. He replies, he said, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, 
but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage and they can no longer die for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. Now, we can sort of ascertain a couple of interesting, valuable things from, from this little phrase and, and couple sentences that Jesus. First of all, we learned something useful. Marriage is for this life. And I can go on, we're not going to do a big talk on marriage, but marriage is for this life. And Jesus says that heaven, the eternal kingdom is a different thing. Relationships are going to be all in perfect unity. Marriage is for this life. And some of you are like, oh, honey, just so in love. It's not forever. But, but the, the diamond company said diamonds were forever. <laughs> oh, and others of you are going, well, we won't go there. <laughs> love your wives, love your husbands. But the point is, heaven's going to be amazing. It's going to be better than anything we can ever imagine. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it, like a book that never ends and every chapter keeps getting better. It's eternity. So we learned something interesting about marriage. We also observe something about the kingdom of God in here. He talks about this age and the age to come. And let me just try to unpack this quickly without taking too much time on it. But you have creation. God created the world. And then just a couple chapters in at the beginning, you have the fall where mankind introduced sin into the world, destruction, decay, pain, suffering, death, the fall of mankind. And then all throughout the Old Testament, there's this beautiful promise of, of redemption and restoration and this hope that's looking forward to God's kingdom or the kingdom age, or as by the time uh, that Jesus was around, it became known as the age to come. This age and the age to come. This beautiful time when sickness and death will be no more, when God's kingdom will come in fullness, where his will will be done perfectly, where death will be defeated forever. Awesome. Amazing. And so when Jesus comes, what he announces, and the radical thing is he announces that the kingdom of God is, is coming near, that it's breaking in, in his presence and in his ministry, that it's upon them. The kingdom of God has come upon them. But also we see this idea that the kingdom of God is, is though it's breaking in in the ministry of Jesus, and then in Acts, and um, in Acts we see breaking in in the ministry of the apostles. Though it's breaking in, it's, it's still future. It's waiting. We're waiting for a future time when the age to come, when the kingdom comes in fullness, and that's when Jesus Christ returns. And so that's what they're thinking about. And that's what he's talking about. And see, when Jesus rises, dies and rises again, he brings about the means of forgiveness and the, the means of entry into his eternal kingdom. And, and how is that? It's through faith in Jesus Christ. We know that as the gospel. The good news, that through faith in Jesus, you can have eternal life. You can have entry into the eternal kingdom. And yet, where we live today, we understand that... Uh, it, it's all over the New Testament. We have dual citizenship. You're citizens of this, the country you live in. But before that, your primary citizenship is in the kingdom of God. You're a citizen of heaven. 
the heavenly kingdom. Those are used synonymously in the scriptures. And so we understand the kingdom of God. A term that we use a lot around here is it's the now and the not yet. That means it breaks into the present in the work of Jesus. It breaks into the present in the work of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. It breaks into the present in the work of the Holy Spirit through us as we follow his leading. And we get tastes of it and glimpses of it. And God shows up and moves in incredible ways when we pray. And sometimes we pray for people and miraculously they're healed. Other times we pray for people and nothing happens. Sometimes you pray about a situation and wow, God resolves it. Other times the suffering goes on. And we understand that through the framework that the kingdom of God is breaking in. But it's not coming in fullness until Jesus returns. I think one of the most powerful things you can do as you follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life is to go through your day to day and just ask God to tap you on the shoulder and be aware of those he wants you to minister to in his power. And when he taps you on the shoulder, and what I mean by that isn't literally, although who knows, maybe. Uh, what I mean by that is it's a still small voice. It's that thought that goes through your head of I should go talk to the neighbor today. And you go talk to the neighbor and, and they're about ready to have a breakdown. And you're able to pray with them. And it encourages them and comforts them and brings God's peace to them. It's that invitation, timely invitation to church. And I think one of the most powerful things you can do is actually say, just ask the question, how can I pray for you? As you meet people in your life, you don't have to make it weird. As you, but as you meet people in your life and you find out there's things going on in their life, just say, man, how can I pray for you? And then don't do this, because this is something we're guilty of as Jesus followers. Don't go, okay, I'll pray for you, and then go home and forget. And then probably here's what you do. You go home and forget until the next time you see them, and then the next time you see them, you see them you're like, oh, I forgot to pray for them. I don't want to be a liar. And so you pray like really quick. Oh, God, help them retroactively through what they were going through. Because I know somehow, you know, you're sovereign and you can do that uh, retroactively. You see me praying now. Somehow, I don't know how this all works. Come on, you do it too, right? You've done it. No, pray for them right in the moment. Put your, say, hey, uh, can I pray for, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe that, that, you know, that God is alive and active and present in this world. Can I pray for you right now? And then you, put, you say, can I put a hand on your shoulder just, you know, because that's something we do because that's what scripture teaches us, something about that, and you just pray for them. And then you ask God to, to show up and move in a very literal, real way in their life. And sometimes you'll see something dramatic and sometimes you won't. But I think it's one of the most powerful things you can do in your walk of following Jesus. The third thing we see, little thing we see in this, is not everyone will take part in the age to come. And that should be a sobering thought. Sobering truth. Because scripture is so clear that it's only through faith in Jesus, by the work of Jesus. So Jesus goes on and he rebukes them. After this, he says, he gives them this little thing that they had missed all these years in their own scripture. And, 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 and 
It's brilliant. He said, but in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. For he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. For to him, all are alive. So see, even in the scriptures you guys believe, I don't, you don't believe all the other stuff, but even in there, you see the idea of resurrection. And some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. They're not playing chess with him anymore. They're done trying to trap him, trying to checkmate him. And so the second checkmate move is this. It's foolish to live for God's kingdom. There's no future kingdom. It's foolish to live for eternity. It's foolish to orient your life around his kingdom. For some of you, these, these are the things you struggle with. It's, it's foolish to do your moral, moral life the way that God reveals in Scripture, especially in our society today. It's foolish to do singleness the way that God says to do singleness. It's foolishness to give away significant portions of your resources. Do you know what you could do with that? It's just foolish. Does it really make any difference? It's foolishness to trust in a rabbi that died 2,000 years ago. Except, except, as hundreds of witnesses, eyewitnesses attest to, he rose from the dead and he promises that you can too. That you can have eternal life through faith in him. Paul put it this way in Corinthians. He said, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. John Wimber, the guy that founded the, our association of churches, said this, I'm a fool for Christ. Whose fool are you? He saw it on somebody, like back in the Jesus movement, he saw it on somebody's uh, T-shirt, like said, I'm a fool for Christ on the back of it. Whose fool are you? And when he gave his life to Christ, that realization came crashing in and he remembered that. So as we close today, I just want you to know the traps we're tempted to live in. The traps that, that trap to distract, to distract yourself with a cause, to never allow God to deal with your heart. To hold your faith as just a private spiritual matter and, and actually live like God's not even alive today. To live like he's not active. To live like here and now is all there is. And it's really not worth living for the kingdom. And if you fall prey to any one of those traps, as you try to follow Jesus, you will miss out on what God has for you. You will. And so really, here's, here's my heart for you as we close today, that I want you to embrace all that God has for you. Don't you want everything he has for you? I want you to embrace everything he has for you. I want you to really know and experience the living God, the living God who is present and active in your life. I want you to really live your life for his kingdom. And so is there an area where you are resisting what God wants to do in your life? He can be resisted. We see that. The Holy Spirit can be resisted. And he's a gentleman. 
He's not going to force you to do it. But you will miss out on what he has for you if you don't submit your life to him. Do you think the whole thing is just foolish? Got news for you. You're going to be a fool. Whose fool do you want to be? Do you think there's something more valuable than serving God and seeking his kingdom first? There's nothing more valuable. There's nothing more valuable. Not only is his kingdom real, it's worth giving up anything. Any, it's worth paying any price to enter, to live for. I got very, three very specific little action steps that tie into this. One is this. Embrace faith in Jesus. Maybe for some in the room, you've just never really given your life to Jesus. As we close in prayer, you can use your own words. You can repent. That means um, confess that you're a sinner, that you need him. Turn from that and say, I want to follow you with my life. You ask for forgiveness. You affirm your trust in what he did for you. And some of you, I hope you'll make that step this morning. For others of you, you need to re-engage in prayer, in scripture, or in worship. In prayer, those times of really seeking him, and not just making a list of everything you want and praying about it, but really taking time to be quiet and commune with God, to allow him to speak to your heart, to get in the scriptures. The primary way he speaks to us is through his scriptures. He never speaks in contradiction to his scriptures. If you don't know the scriptures, how will you know? If what you think you're hearing from God is actually accurate, you won't. You got to know the scriptures. Some of you, you need to re-engage in worship. In worship. And that includes singing, what we do here. It includes that. And I know some of you, you're not big singers. But it's that heart that responds to the beauty of who he is. It's seeing God for who he really is and responding in joy and adoration and praise to him. And a big component of worship is living your life for him. Paul says it's living your life as a sacrifice for him. And the last thing's real simple. I want you to listen and respond to the Holy Spirit. Respond maybe to the obedience thing that he's prompting you towards and you just know that this is the thing that he wants you to do. For some, it's to a step of faith he's calling you to take. You know he's calling you to have that conversation with, with so-and-so or to, to, to bring up Jesus to, to your friend or to invite somebody to church or to just ask if you can pray for somebody. might feel awkward. Respond to him. Do it. You never know how he's going to show up and show how active he is in the moment and what you'll miss out on if you don't. There's nothing worth more than living for him and for his kingdom and for eternity. A guy, uh, the director of our association said this this week at the conference and I thought it was so good. You will never invent a more adventurous life than the life God created for you. Would you stand? And I'm just gonna invite you to respond in uh, a little different way as I close in prayer. If you would like to, and you don't have to, but if you would like to, I wanna invite you just to stretch out your hands in front of you just like this, nothing weird. And then we're going to all bow our heads and close our eyes. And if you, if you just want to, to become more aware of his activity and presence in your life, I just want to invite you. It's just a posture of receiving from him. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. 
And if that's you, anybody in the room, and there should be a bunch of us, would you just, just stretch out your hands in front of you? Just a posture of saying, I want to receive from you, God. And as we close in prayer, if you need to give your life to Jesus, you can do that in your own words as we close. I encourage you to do that now. Lord, and for the rest of my friends here, I just pray that you would meet them in whatever area you're highlighting in their life, Lord. That they would experience more awareness of your presence within them. That you would give them the boldness to take the steps you're calling them to. That they would live like you are alive and active and present. And when they step out and obey, I ask that you would, you would show up in such a way that they just are blown away. And because of that, Lord, it's not for us alone. It's for the sake of your kingdom and for the sake of those who are lost and don't know you. We pray that many would come to know you through that. In Jesus' name, amen.